Welcome to the Labor Force Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Strukin, proud member of New York State United Teachers, celebrating 50 years this year. Big news on the labor front this past week, as reported by Politico. Michigan on Friday became the first state in more than half a century to repeal the right-to-work law. Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed legislation passed by the Democratic-controlled legislature overturning a 2012 GOP law that allowed workers to choose not to join unions or pay union dues as a condition of employment, even if the union represents them in negotiations. That last part is the kicker. You work in a unionized workplace? You're not in competition with your colleagues. You're not on a pedestal. You can't bargain your own contract. You're subject to the contract the union negotiates on your behalf. Don't like it? Talk to the negotiating committee and suggest changes. Get involved. Or just give up your benefits. Plunge into our capitalist paradise and be your own boss. And set your own terms. Good luck. You first need to know the history of right-to-work laws and how they came about, courtesy of More Perfect Union. To understand the current fight over right to work, we have to go back to the New Deal. So in 1935, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act, and that was the first national labor law that provided protection to workers in the private sector, the right to organize and an obligation on the part of the employer to bargain a collective bargaining agreement. After the law was passed in 1935, elections were held across the country in workplaces for workers to choose a union, and unions were winning these elections uh, at an extremely high rate, nearly 100% of the time. That's Robert Bruno, a professor of labor history at the University of Illinois. And then in the 1940s, the labor movement began to expand its organizing into the South, and they were making significant gains where they were organizing new members in the Deep South, places like Texas, for example. As a result of that growth of the labor movement, there was a movement generated by white supremacists in the South connected to the business community who organized around the idea of passing the so-called right-to-work laws to try to stop the labor movement from expanding into the South, ultimately, uh, when Republicans took control of the United States Congress in 1946, high on their agenda was the passage of a right-to-work bill known as the Taft-Hartley Law. There you have it, rooted squarely in white supremacy and discrimination. We will not let anyone else reach a fair standard of living around here not least of which anyone different from us. Draw a straight line from this to Martin Luther King, assassinated in Memphis while helping black sanitation workers organize. Two of those workers were crushed to death by a malfunctioning truck, and take a wild guess why that truck and others like it were still in service at the time. A toxic stew of racism, corporatism, and political malfeasance. How we got from there to here with right-to-work laws is a lesson in opportunistic partisanship. While both Republicans and Democrats are bought, there's a clear difference on this front. According to 538, in the 2010s, as Republicans gained power in state houses nationwide, there was a renewed push to pass right-to-work laws in new states, and organizations such as the American Legislative Exchange Council provided model legislation. 
Since 2012, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, West Virginia, and Kentucky passed these sorts of laws, and Alabama and Tennessee passed right-to-work constitutional amendments, making them harder to overturn. Before Michigan's repeal, 27 states had right-to-work laws, constitutional amendments, or both. Similarly, in 2018, the Supreme Court ruled that public sector workers covered by a collective bargaining agreement did not have to pay union dues. I'm sorry, that's just painful to even say. Are you kidding? This ruling, combined with state-level right-to-work laws, has created a difficult legal environment for unions and weakened their power. Multiple studies showed that union density dropped in most of those states in the aftermath of the passage of right-to-work laws, compared with other similar states, even taking the Great Recession into account. There is also some evidence that such laws lowered wages and employee benefits in states that adopted them. Proponents of right-to-work laws? Decreasing unions' power in a state will entice employers and lead to more jobs. But what kind of jobs? In states like Michigan, income inequality has increased as union density has declined. This appears to be because the presence of unions tends to lower the number of households at the top and bottom of the income scale. In other words, parity, equality, a tide that can lift all boats as it rises. But back to workers who decide to buck the union and go their own way, while still receiving contract benefits negotiated for them, and having absolutely no problem with that. The face of the 2018 Supreme Court case was Mark Janus. Here he is in a promo clip from the Illinois Policy Institute. I'm Mark Janus. I live in Springfield, Illinois. I work for the Department of Healthcare and Family Services, and I'm the lead plaintiff in Janus versus AFSCME. You know, I, I would say I'm just an average guy. I'm a middle-class person that goes to work every day, enjoys my activities, got my kids that I love dearly, and I would like to see the state come back and, and be the powerhouse that it could be and that it used to be. Quite frankly, I don't think it's really sunk in quite yet. The ramifications of this case, everybody tells me it has national implications, but I don't look at it that way. I, I just look at it as an average guy kind of standing up for his own rights of free speech. Yes, it'll have national repercussions, but I, I don't look at it that I'm anybody special or anybody you know, extraordinary. I work for Healthcare and Family Services and I'm forced to pay money to a union that then supports political causes that I don't agree with. Funny how he said he's no one special, just an average guy. Just the face of a Supreme Court case intended to gut unions and undercut workers across the country. And not as money going to the union's political causes, that's forbidden in my state federation. We have a separate, voluntary political arm that is expressly not funded by union dues. We endorse Republicans and Democrats as applicable to the interests of public education at large. I recently went to the state capitol on our annual lobbying day, and our group had productive, reasonable conversations with three Republicans who were largely receptive to our proposals. It depends on policy. Janice then said he'd rather give his money to the Boy Scouts or other civic organizations instead of the union, while taking advantage of union-negotiated health care, any salary scale increase, retirement benefits, etc. Not a young man. Five years on from the case, he's probably collecting those benefits as we speak. As that case was coming down, as a public school teacher and union officer for my local, it was game on to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with all of our members and renew our commitment to the union, which turns 50 this year and stands truly on the shoulders of giants. 
We're a big local of nearly 400 members of all different political stripes. And no, we didn't recommit everyone. One member I spoke to had no trouble recommitting, or to the union in principle, but didn't want to sign the card. But the key was to listen. And in the end, only a few individuals declined. They have no voice and cannot vote, but they still receive contract benefits, meaning the rest of us subsidize them. You can check out my episodes, A Collective Bargain, and Unionism 101 for more context. To close, I want to go deep with the Starbucks Workers United campaign, which is still fighting the good fight. As Vox reports, after stepping down from the Starbucks CEO position earlier than expected, Howard Schultz will have to answer for his and the company's behavior when he testifies before the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee as part of its investigation into federal labor law. That's happening today, as a matter of fact. We'll see how forthcoming he actually is. Here from the annual Delegates Dinner of the Rochester, New York Labor Council in December is Michelle Eisen, who I've been inspired by, among the many other rank and fathers who have said enough is enough and are doing what they can to turn the wheel in a generational shift toward the working class. Michelle is definitely one of those pulling as hard as she can, a barista who helped lead the original Buffalo campaign that touched off the Starbucks unionization efforts nationwide. Her story serves as a reminder as if we need any more reminders. In unity, there is indisputable strength. Michelle Eisen, who I've gotten the, the pleasure to know recently, is a 12-year Starbucks barista in Buffalo, New York, also a great city, for those that haven't spent much time there. Um, she led a successful organizing drive at her store, becoming the first unionized Starbucks in the nation. I know, that's very exciting. Even more exciting, it immediately galvanizes a movement, not only in Buffalo, but all over the country. They've grown now in less than a year to include over 260 union stores with 7,000 members. <laughs> Michelle facilitates the campaign's National Bargaining Committee She's testified on Capitol Hill before the House Education and Labor Committee. She's also stage production manager with uh, two decades of experience in the local professional theater scene, which again, if you have not experienced in Buffalo, make a point to do. <laughs> so I'd like to welcome up Michelle to share some words with us. And I'd like to say that uh, in the last year, I've been more inspired than ever to say to hell with the words unorganizable. with Starbucks in 2010. As Colin said, I'm a production stage manager in the theater industry and I needed a flexible daytime job that would provide me with health benefits. Enter Starbucks, a self-proclaimed progressive company that stated that they cared about the environment, the community, and their workers, or partners as they referred to them. And for a time after I was hired, I really believed that to be the case. Fast forward to June of 2021. I, like hundreds of thousands of service workers in the US, had worked through the bulk of the pandemic in customer-facing positions 
putting ourselves and our families at risk daily. And in almost all cases, the companies that we worked for completely failed us. We were called essential, but we were treated like we were disposable. And I was done. I didn't know where I was going, but I knew I could not continue to work for a company that so blatantly undervalued its partners. At most, I had a few months left in me. Shortly after I made that decision, I received a text message from one of my fellow partners. She asked me if I would be interested in getting a cup of coffee later that week, which is weird because we literally serve coffee all day. But I agreed, and it was at that meeting that she asked me what I thought of the possibility of organizing our Starbucks store, to which I replied I'd never thought about it. I knew very little about organized labor, but I did know that it included very little of the service industry. In spite of that, I asked her to tell me everything she could, and when she was done, I calmly explained that while I was interested, I didn't know how much time I was gonna be able to commit. After all, the theater industry was opening back up post-pandemic, and I was gonna be busy with production work, but I certainly had no intention of standing in their way. Then about a week after we filed our petition, I was called into my first anti-union meeting with corporate. We sat in a circle at a hotel conference room and listened to Ross Ann Williams, the then president of Starbucks North America, tell us that we are all partners and that the company has already given us all so much. And I saw the looks on the faces of my coworkers as we were being bullied and manipulated into voting against our best interests. And that's the moment I realized that I couldn't take a passive role in this fight. That not actively working against my fellow co-workers was not the same as standing with them. They concluded the meeting by saying that they were just giving us the facts. And if we wanted information about the union, we should contact a union rep. So I raised my hand and I said, I'm one of the partner organizers and I'd be happy to answer any questions that any of you may have. And there was no turning back from there. On December 9th, 2021, we won the first Starbucks union in the U.S. Since then, our campaign has grown into a movement. As of today, we have 270 unionized locations across the country with more joining every day. As reference, a little under a year ago, there were zero unionized locations in the US. I've been told many times that our campaign is different, that it is unlike organizing campaigns of the past, and while it, that's true in some ways, it's more accurate to say that what Starbucks workers are doing is merely an extension of what many worker organizers throughout US labor history have already done. We've been, we have been able to harness social media and video platforms to talk with workers across the country and globe, and these have been invaluable tools. But the most important lesson of our success is that the basic elements of organizing are the same as they were 100 years ago. Our movement is rooted in the ability to connect with one another on a human level, through the interests we share in our workplaces and industry. Using those techniques refined from previous organizing efforts, we have created a campaign that is largely worker-led. We refer to them as partner organizers. It's simply workers from one organized store connecting with a worker and helping that worker organize their store. We also play large roles in other aspects of the campaign, such as communications, broader strategy questions, and media. I mentioned earlier how little I knew about organized labor before my involvement with this campaign. 
but that I knew it included very little in the service industry. In large part because it's an industry that has long been thought to be unorganizable for a multitude of reasons. It takes a lot of support to organize an industry like ours, and a lot of unions would consider our campaign too big a risk to take. Fortunately for us, Gary Bonadonna Jr. of uh, Workers United own Rochester Regional Joint Board here, was willing to take on that challenge. And we are very lucky to have been able to form such a collaborative relationship with a union as established as Workers United. Not only is, work, is our worker-led structure supported, but it is encouraged and even celebrated by both the staff and our fellow union members who have committed a million dollars of their own dues to a strike and relief fund for our Starbucks campaign. I can't think of a more fitting example of solidarity. There is a pervasive way of thinking that has been drilled into most surface workers that the jobs are unskilled, that we don't deserve fair wages or safe working conditions, and that being disrespected regularly is just part of the job. And if we don't like it, we can go work somewhere else. Anybody who has ever spent a day on the floor in one of these cafes can tell you that our jobs are far from unskilled. Our labor is valuable. It brings in billions of dollars a year for Starbucks, and without our labor, the business would simply cease to exist. And I hope this movement is a small step in changing that way of thinking. Our asks are pretty simple. Listen to our voices when it comes to working conditions. Pay us fairly. Invest in our futures with the company. Because we are Starbucks. I'm often asked what it's going to take to win this fight. And to me, the answer is simple, at least in theory. We continue to organize. We continue to support our fellow workers. We stand together to condemn Starbucks' anti-union behavior. And we ask the public to do the same. Because we are not only fighting corporate we are also fighting the public brand of Starbucks. If Starbucks truly were the progressive company it professes to be, it would recognize our right to organize and be a leader in the industry. And I have a lot of hope that we will get there, but it won't be alone. Until then, we will continue to stand together and we will continue to fight. Less than 48 hours from today will be the one year anniversary of that first unionized location in Buffalo, New York. There is a large rally happening in um, our city, downtown, and we would invite anyone here who would like to drive up to Buffalo for a couple of hours to join us, to stand in solidarity, to continue to call on Starbucks to do the right thing, to come to the table and start negotiating that first contract in good faith, and just to share the camaraderie that we feel so strongly from our city and from Rochester and our surrounding city and basically anyone who isn't in the top 1% because everybody seems to be rooting for us except for those who are afraid of us. So thank you all very much for having me here to speak with you today and to, to celebrate this wonderful organization. So thanks for listening. If you'd like to support the show, you can find Labor Force on Spotify for podcasters and select a level, starting at just a dollar a month. Also, please share, rate, and review to help others find the show. You can listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care and stay union strong.